This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines, the summer series. Well, our relationship with China has been turbulent to say the least. The once enthusiastic relationship, well, that's turned frosty. And according to my first guest, it's Australia that needs to change and adapt to the Asian 21st century. Kishore Mahbubani is one of Southeast Asia's most distinguished public intellectuals. He's a former Singaporean ambassador to the UN, twice, and author of many prominent books, including Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. I spoke with Kishore back in August. We're coming to the end of the era of Western domination of world history, which enabled Australia as a Western nation to grow and thrive and succeed very well. But with the end of the era of Western domination of world history, and as we enter into what I call the Asian 21st century, then clearly Australia has to make strategic adjustments. And the earlier it makes the adjustments, it'll be better for Australia. But I want to emphasize that Australia, I don't think, is going to become uh, either economically or physically an impoverished nation, but certainly Australia could become politically isolated from its neighbours if it continues to have a very hostile relationship uh, with China when all the other, most of the other neighbours in China, in one way or another, they don't kowtow to China, they don't bend to Chinese power, they remain independent and strong, but they also have worked out ways and means of getting along uh, with uh, China. And I think this is something that's missing clearly in Australian foreign policy in, the, in, in recent decades. So it's important for Australia to wake up and ask itself, how can it adjust to the new geopolitical environment in the region around Australia? And as you say in your recent uh, foreign affairs essay, quote, a subtle form of political isolation could envelop Australia in East Asia. And you go on to say that signs of such isolation are emerging. How so? Well, I think, you know, I recently had a meeting with some of, some of the best uh, uh, foreign service people in Southeast Asia. They're, they're outstanding diplomats who have retired. And I once, uh, I once asked them at a meeting very recently, and I said, hey, how do you perceive Australia in our region? And I was stunned. Within a, within a split second, the answer came back to me was, Australia is perceived as a Trojan horse. That perception itself is very damaging because it suggests that Australia is working at the behest of other powers and insensitive to its own uh, region and, and neighbourhood. And I think that's a very dangerous perception to emerge of Australia. And, and, you know, in many ways, Australia is blessed that it is surrounded by ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, because ASEAN, by becoming the second most successful regional organization in the world, and after having delivered several decades of peace and prosperity, is actually in many ways a geopolitical gift to Australia and one that provides Australia a wonderful buffer against China. But Australia, I must say, is carrying out the probable mistake 
of looking a gift horse in the mouth. In many ways, to undermine ASEAN rather than to work with ASEAN in this region. Many Australians would disagree, and they would say that uh, the Australian government's decisions over recent years that have upset China have been in the Australian national interest. It's not so much about America, but the Australian national interest context. Mm. Beijing has been furious about Canberra's decision to reject uh, the Huawei 5G network bid uh, to implement foreign interference laws, uh, support the international inquiry into the Wuhan COVID outbreak. But hasn't China's hostility over these issues been over the top? Now, let's get your reaction to something that the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, this is what he told me recently. One may say, and other, some people have, that Scott Morrison was injudicious calling for a independent inquiry into the origins mm. of the COVID virus. But what was completely over the top was the Chinese mm. reaction to it. Mm. I mean, the reality is, if Maurice Payne who actually said it, but if Maurice Payne had said that and it had been ignored in Beijing, you know very well as a journalist, it would have sunk without trace. If they had said something like, oh, yes, we note that and no doubt the World Health Administration will have a you know, conduct an investigation in due course with which we'll cooperate, it would have been two pars on page 70. The only thing that made that statement news newsworthy was the ferocious reaction to it. That's former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull on Between the Lines, Kishore Mabobani. <laughs> you know, Australia, as you know, is a very young nation with no long history and no long history of understanding uh, the neighbourhood it has been around. But a, a nation that has been around for a long time is Vietnam. And as you know, Vietnam is not a supplicant of China in any way. But there is a very uh, uh, sort of well-known saying in Vietnam that if you want to become a leader of Vietnam, you must be able to stand up to China and you must also be able to get along with China. If you cannot do both, you cannot become a leader of Vietnam. Now, Vietnam, by the way, has been a neighbor of China for 2,000 years, occupied by China 1,000 years. They understand very well how you manage a, a big power like China. I think Australia lacks that historical sensitivity in dealing with China and, and from time to time makes statements that are clearly provocative uh, towards China and, and, and believes that it can just ignore what happened, the, the reactions of the Chinese people. If you are a relatively smaller country living with a very strong and powerful country, you don't kowtow to that big country, but you understand the sensitivities of the country and try your best not to offend them unnecessarily. And this is where the Morrison government, as you know, showed a complete insensitivity to China in its various statements and so on and so forth. And in, in many ways, I can tell you that if Australia did was something wonderful, then frankly, all of Australia's neighbours, the ASEAN countries, would have joined in. But I can tell you, all the ASEAN countries look with shock and horror at the Australian statement and say, don't the Australians realise the neighbourhood that they're living in and learn how to deal with China and to unnecessarily 
publicly insult China was completely unnecessary. You can't, you can call for an inquiry, but there are ways and means of doing so privately, discreetly, and in a way that ensures that you don't make China lose face. And in, 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 in almost all Asian cultures, losing face is something that is terrible. And Australia was making China lose face publicly. And that was completely unnecessary. And then the shocking thing is that Australians get very surprised <laughs> by the strong reaction. And the, and the Southeast Asians said, how can you get surprised? Don't you understand culture? <laughs> but, um, I mean, you've just said that we're a young nation that lacks the... A diplomatic nuance, but Australia, Keyshore, as you well know, you've been here many times. We are a yeah. vibrant liberal democracy, whereas the Southeast Asian nation you cite, Vietnam, it's a, an authoritarian state. So in a democracy, public opinion matters. This is the Lowy Institute. It shows that the Australian public has moved strongly against China since Beijing's trade tariffs on our nation. Only 12% say we trust China somewhat or a great deal. Now, that's a 40% decrease since 2018. So, again, following on from former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, hasn't Beijing's wolf warrior diplomacy and these trade tariffs, hasn't that been counterproductive? Life is unfair. I think if Australians don't realise that, then they are being very politically naive. What is more important than what 25 million Australians think of China is what 1.4 billion Chinese think of Australia. And for Australia to allow its standing in China to go down so dramatically is very, very unwise. And, and so, frankly, the, the big question that Australia should be asking is not what I think of China, but what China thinks of me. Uh, and how do I adjust to that? And how do I live in a world where China is able, I mean, to have reasonably calm and, and rational relations with all its neighbours except Australia. Now, is, does, that, does that make China the exception in the region or does that make Australia the exception uh, in the region? And is it wise for Australia to become the exception in the region? I can, I can tell you, by the way, that when I was Permanent Secretary, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I worked very closely uh, with the Australian government, the Keating, Gareth Evans, Michael Costello government, to have Australia join what I call the community of 12, the 10 uh, ASEAN countries plus Australia and New Zealand. We actually wanted to integrate Australia more into this region. We wanted Australia to become more and more like the ASEAN countries. And unfortunately, in the, the Keating government, by the way, and Evans, and Evans and all reacted positively to that in the mid-1990s. But since then, it is Australia that has gone off course and decided to go off on a tangent and ignore what the rest of the region is doing and behave in a way that the whole region looks at it and says, my God, what's happened to Australia? Yeah, but since the Keating era, China itself has become increasingly assertive. It scares the bejesus out of a lot of states. Uh, it's not just Canberra. I mean, you say, and you're not alone, there are many people in Australia like Paul Keating, the former Foreign Minister Bob Carr, the distinguished historian James Curran. They say that Canberra has been stranded out in front against Beijing. That's your line. Yet it's NATO. NATO has identified China as a global threat to the interests and security of NATO. That's 32 nations, the Transatlantic Alliance, 
does not this suggest that Australia's China challenge in the Indo-Pacific region, that's been globalised? NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. And it is very, what you just said, Tom, is very, very striking. That Australia has aligned its views with the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, most of whose members live on the other side of the world and will not in any way be influenced directly by Chinese power in a way that Australia will be influenced by Chinese power in the 21st century. And more importantly, the most important statistic that Australians should remember is that out of the world's population of close to 7.8 billion people, only 12% live in the West, 88% live outside the West. And of these 88%, there are 193 countries in the world, 127 of them trade more with China than they do with the United States. And about 140 countries have signed agreements uh, to join the Belt and Road Initiative with China. So the vast majority of the world, in one way or another, has accepted China's rise as a great power and is working out ways and means of working, uh, of working out mutually beneficial relations with China. So it is Australia that is the exception. Australia is not in line with global trends. What about Japan and India that are members of the um, the so-called Quad? They're in Asia. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And let me ask you a simple question. Did India condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine? No. Did Australia condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yes. See? And, and so you, you, you've got to understand that India is a very sophisticated country. How many Australians have read carefully the speech that Prime Minister Modi just gave on the 75th anniversary of India's independence on August 15, 2022? Ask, and I bet you it's less than a handful of Australians would have read that speech. And they should read that speech very, very carefully. Because what is he talking about in that speech? He says, the era when the West could pass judgments on India is over. India will now carve its own destiny. Why is India bothering to seek the approval of, he didn't say West directly, but he's implying the West all the time. Read that speech carefully and you understand that India is carving out an independent foreign policy for itself and say, unlike Australia, which is you indicated earlier, which is aligning with NATO, India will never align with NATO. And India will also have its own independent uh, foreign policy vis-a-vis China. Uh, India respects the one China policy across the uh, Taiwan Straits. And India uh, will find ways and means of getting along with China. They have India has strong differences with China, very strong differences. But you will learn how to manage these differences and continue to cooperate with China on issues where they have common interests, like, for example, on climate change. My guest is Kishore Mabobani, a veteran diplomat from Singapore. He's author of The Asian 21st Century, an open access book 
which has been downloaded nearly two million times. Keyshaw, you've argued that within a decade or two, China will be the undisputed number one economic power, with most nations having stronger economic ties with Beijing than with the United States. But are you overlooking China's real weaknesses and limitations? I think of the ageing population, a declining workforce, that's three million a year, which is remarkable, and the growing repression of its people. Given all this, is it necessarily a given that China just continues to succeed economically? You are absolutely right. China faces very serious uh, long-term structural challenges, uh, like the demographic challenge, like the challenge of climate change and its impact on China's environment. Yes, the question is whether China will be able to handle these challenges and to overcome them. And so it is possible that China may not succeed in becoming the world's number one economic power. And if that happens, frankly, then there's less to worry about. It's a, it's not, the world is not going to change fundamentally. But the, the likelihood is that China is going to succeed. And it's better to plan for a scenario uh, which is going to be more challenging rather than to indulge in wishful thinking and think the world is not going to change fundamentally. Because when China becomes number one, as I expected to, then frankly, the world changes dramatically. And, and if you're swimming in a different ocean with different tides and currents, don't, don't use your old, your old methods and practices uh, of the past. And that's, that's my big message, that the world is changing fundamentally. And Australia should basically do a major strategic reset and ask itself, this is a new world, how do I adjust and adapt to it? And in my Australian Foreign Affairs article, I suggest that Australia can play a very valuable role by becoming a bridge between the West and Asia, and also, frankly, over time, a bridge between the United States and China. That gives Australia tremendous diplomatic opportunities that it should take advantage of. But to take advantage of those opportunities, Australia must learn to be able to get along equally well with both Beijing and Washington, D.C. Well, that's Kishore Mabubani, one of Southeast Asia's most distinguished public intellectuals. He's a former Singaporean ambassador to the UN and author of Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. Up next, the shortest history of the Soviet Union. Well, during the past eight years, this program has been honoured to invite many world-acclaimed experts to address modern history, as well as contemporary issues surrounding politics and international affairs. One of those distinguished intellectuals is my next guest, Sheila Fitzpatrick. She's Australian, though she spent much of her academic time abroad, and she's one of the world's leading experts on 20th century Soviet Russian history. Sheila's award-winning books include My Father's Daughter, Mishka's War, On Stalin's Team, and The Russian Revolution. Her new book is called The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. That's published by Black Ink Books. And what a story. Soviet Russia arrived in the world accidentally, 1917, and departed unexpectedly in 1991. 
Now, these days, Sheila is professor at the Australian Catholic University's Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences, and it's a great pleasure to welcome her back to Between the Lines. Hi there, Sheila. Hello. Now, you've distinguished yourself as an historian of the Soviet Union, mainly in the US, before you returned to Australia about a decade ago. What prompted you to write this thesis? Well, I was asked to write A Shortest History of Russia. And I thought, no, that isn't my bag, but it would be really interesting to write a shortest history of the Soviet Union because suddenly it stopped existing and therefore it acquired a shape in a way it didn't have before. And so I said, yes, and that's how the book came about. Well, no understanding of the Soviet Union is really satisfactory without understanding what preceded the Bolsheviks in 1917. Of course, I'm referring to the Tsarist monarchy of the Romanovs. Now, Question, why had Russia been immune to all those revolutionary upheavals in Europe of the 18th and 19th centuries? It did have peasant revolts. That was its thing. It was mainly a peasant population, slow to industrialise, therefore relatively slow to urbanise and uh, and and acquire a, 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 an urban working class. And so I think that, that basically accounts for the slowness to have the kind of revolution that involves the cities. And then comes the Russian revolutions. There's two of them in, 20, in 1917 and in 2017. You and I marked those anniversaries with uh, two programs on Between the Lines. Now, that led to the USSR, and that included Russia and all these republics. Now, the Bolshevik Revolution, that was meant to spark off revolution throughout Europe. That plan did not work. Why? I wouldn't call it a plan. You know, it was an expectation. Their Marxist understanding of history was that capitalism collapse, would collapse uh, in the fullness of time and uh, mm. in, through proletarian revolution. But their sense was that Russia was not uh, the most advanced in terms of development of an industrial working class. And therefore, uh, while revolution might com- come in Russia, that would be in terms of the weakest link in the capitalist chain snapping. So they snapped. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but then the rest of the tra- chain, uh, I, well, I, I'm a bit puzzled, in trouble with my metaphor here, but the chain sort of reformed. That's right. So Russia, unlike, say, what, Britain and Germany at this period of time, we're talking 1917, it was still only at the beginning of the capitalist phase, if you like. So it was not really ripe for proletarian socialist revolution, or as at least that's how the Marxist theorists would put it, but it still happened, though, in 1917. Yeah, well, it seems to me it should only surprise you if you're a Marxist, because otherwise (laughs) what you might say is, okay, you've got a country uh, with quite a few problems in the midst of rapid change, which is always, you know, unsettling and difficult for governments to keep a hold of. Uh, They get into a war and they do very badly (laughs) and a revolution comes. Yeah, I studied the revolution both at high school and university. It's a fascinating subject. But I'd actually forgotten about the role that Vladimir Lenin's economic policies actually changed things in the early 20s. Now, you make it very clear that this so-called new economic policy, this is following the, the 1917 revolution, that actually reflected not socialism or communism, but market principles. And there was a degree of private sector involvement in the economy. Sheila? Yeah, it was. They were backing off from their their first ambitious 
uh, war communism, so-called uh, programs, which involve uh, uh, nationalization, including of trade, uh, because basically they couldn't make them work. So they backed off. It, it was not a wonderful period in, in Soviet history because it was a post-war period of reconstruction. Mm. Do post-Lenin Marxists, Bolsheviks, communists, call them what you want, do they feel that Lenin sold out by embracing market principles with his NEP? Not usually, no. Mainly they, they see that as something that he was forced to do by economic contingency. I mean, in large part because it wasn't working to simply take the food. Uh, take agricultural produce from the peasantry. It was necessary to put back a, a procedure for for paying for it, otherwise they wouldn't sell it. So I think the necessity for it was recognised. The question would be always would have then been for how long? And he said it will be for quite a while. But on the other hand, it was a slightly difficult policy to put across actually within the party as opposed to the population as a whole. So it's unclear, you know, what how long he had in mind. Uh, but it was, in fact, ended uh, by his successor, Stalin, at the end of the 20s. Sheila, Lenin died only a few years after he led the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917. How did Joseph Stalin outmaneuver Leon Trotsky in the Soviet succession struggle in the 1920s? His big advantage, Stalin's big advantage, was that he was a general secretary of the party uh, and uh, the members of the ruling group, the Politburo, were elected by annual at that point, congresses of the party, elected. Uh, And he was the man who had the good contacts out in the provinces, basically, because as secretary, he was the, the person who, who, who both often appointed them and had dealings with them. Uh, Trotsky, who was extremely uh, visible and famous, was also, in a sense, hesitant to put himself forward for anything like a leadership role. In part, I think that he thought that being Jewish was a problem in terms of leadership in, in the Soviet Union. Well, well, let's turn to Stalinism. I mean, that because that really defines the Soviet Union for about a quarter century from, what, the late 20s to the death of Stalin, 1953. This is a question that's dogged historians for generations. Did Stalin betray Lenin and the Bolsheviks or was he the logical outcome of the revolution? Sheila Fitzpatrick. He certainly saw himself as the logical outcome and the successor to Lenin in his major initiatives, the early policy initiatives, uh, which involved uh, collectivization and the the first five-year plan, which was essentially an industrialization plan, he certainly felt that that was squarely uh, in the line of Lenin's modernization, socialist modernization objective. And I think that was a a reasonable uh, supposition Now, if we get to things like the great purges of the late 30s, whether that sort of almost random bloodletting is something one could imagine Lenin doing, well, I think it's hard to give a definitive answer, but the notion of a complete betrayal by Stalin, I I think in a sense that we, we got that from Trotsky and Trotsky was the, uh, you know, the man who didn't get the job, so to speak. And, of course, a significant part of the Stalin story is World War II. Tell us briefly about the significance of the Great Fatherland War. This is a war to save Russia from its foreign invaders rather than as a war to save the world's first socialist state. That's what you say in your book, Sheila. 
Yes, well, the, the, the Second World War or Great Fatherland War was tremendously uh, important uh, for Russia. And it became, in a sense, uh, for the Soviet Union, it became something like the new foundation myth, uh, crowding out the revolution in, in, uh, in a sense, because it was a very hard fought struggle, uh, which ends uh, in a victory that was, uh, I think, astonished many people. And that became the sort of, yes, a foundation of the Soviet sense of identity and, and self-worth. By the way, do you think that Vladimir Putin today plays off those sentiments when he rails against NATO expansion into Russia's near abroad? Oh, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he always makes the argument that Ukraine's a, a vast terrain of flat land that the, the Nazis crossed to attack Russia. But the, the, the counter-argument isn't, and this is the conventional wisdom, Sheila, is that Putin really just wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Yes, well, probably the, those two things are a bit hard to separate, aren't they? He would ha- undoubtedly, on, on the NATO question, uh, Putin would know, as, uh, uh, as, as did his predecessor, uh, his two predecessors, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, that basically uh, Russia thought they had a promise from the West that NATO would not expand uh, even into Eastern Europe. Uh, let alone into the uh, into the republics that left the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. Uh, so there's there's a feeling there of um, yeah of having been deceived, I suppose, to some degree on the Soviet part. Sheila Fitzpatrick is one of the world's leading experts on 20th century Soviet Russian history. Sheila Stalin died in 1953. His crimes were denounced by his successor Khrushchev. How do historians distinguish between the two eras? First, I think one should say that that while Khrushchev denounced some things about him, he didn't uh, about his policies. He didn't denounce everything. So it's a, it's a mixture. Uh, he denounced the purges, for example, but didn't and and excesses in collectivization, but didn't repudiate collectivization. Didn't, of course, repudiate also the the the, the, the socialist objective. But historians would see the uh, the the, uh, the Khrushchev period as. Uh, quite sharply separated from uh, from the Stalin period and marked by attempts to reform within within a socialist context. Yeah, and you make the point that the Khrushchev period is remembered as the thaw. And Ukraine, you also make this point, I found this interesting, it did well under Khrushchev, who himself was Ukrainian, right? Khrushchev was not exactly Ukrainian. He was ethnically Russian, born in Ukraine. Right. But he was he he served in Ukraine. He'd been Moscow's man in Ukraine, and he he felt complete. He felt at home there. He felt at home in both identities. I think. And when he became the top man in Moscow, he brought quite a few Ukrainians, his old comrades from Ukraine, uh, from the Ukrainian party apparatus. He brought them in, and so Ukraine had very good representation in the Politburo in the last. 20, 30 years of, of the Soviet Union. And in, in general, it was a, a good period for you, Soviet Ukraine. And I think under Khrushchev, Crimea, that's when it went from Russia to Ukraine, correct? That's right. Well, that that's generally been interpreted both as a sort of almost random act, you know, without a, a clear rationale, and as Khrushchev's uh, statement of friendship with his old mates back in Ukraine. Now, Khrushchev falls a couple of years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's 62. So Khrushchev is gone in 64, and his eventual successor is Brezhnev, a cautious pragmatist, you say? 
Yes, well, one of the things about Khrushchev was that he was regard he was spoken of as a harebrained schemer. He had all kinds of quite ambitious uh, programs which didn't always completely uh, come off, like the, the the planting of the virgin lands in Kazakhstan and so on. Uh, but he was particularly seen as volatile and and a little bit uncontrollable and uh, impetuous in uh, relation uh, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which of course he finally came through, uh, but nevertheless, uh, his uh, those around him were very rattled by that. Uh, so Brezhnev, who was a sort of organization man type, he looked really good by comparison, stable, not likely to rock the boat. Yeah, and he's there until about 82, and there's a few Soviet leaders before Gorbachev, now, Gorbachev, of course, is well known for glasnost and perestroika. I'm sure many of our leaders remember this from the 1980s, but just give us a, a 101 history lesson about glasnost and perestroika and the significance in the 1980s. Sheila. Gorbachev came out of the uh, the Communist Party apparatus. He, he had been the, the party boss in, in Stavropol. So he comes... He, as a younger man into a, a leadership which had uh, been looking pretty geriatric, uh, not just Brezhnev, but uh, the, those around him. The two Brezhnev successors had died in, in, in rapid succession. He does not come in with a reputation as a reformer, but once in, he decided to undertake a, a, a program of, of quite radical reform both in the economy and, and the, in the socio, socio-political sphere. Now, the nature of what economic uh, reform he would undertake never became in, entirely clear. The, the sense was the current system was too, uh, too centralised, too bureaucratised and wasn't responding uh, well enough to, um, uh, wasn't able to innovate successfully. Yes, and of course, uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev form a very close relationship in the mid to late 1980s. I'll never forget in the 1984 when Reagan was running for re-election, he was asked why he, Reagan, unlike his predecessors, hadn't met any of the Soviet leaders in the early to mid 80s. And he just said, well, they kept dying on me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the prevailing wisdom is that it was inevitable that the Soviet Union would collapse, as indeed it did. In 1991, of course, you had the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 that helped set the scene for the downfall of the Soviet Union. Attitudes were very different in the early 1980s, Sheila, and you talk about this. Tell us more. Let's take right at the beginning of 1980 because then they get into Afghanistan and things get a bit more complicated uh, or get less good, basically. But at the very beginning of the 1980s, this was in many ways a high point of the Soviet regime. They had military parity, parity with the US. They're a superpower. Uh, living standards are rising, if not as fast as had been hoped. Life expectancy is increasing. Consumer goods are more available. A time when, apart from the fact that there's a general feeling around that it's all rather boring and constrained, uh, a general feeling on in, among educated people, perhaps things are looking quite good. So it is. Uh, I, I start my book with that vignette in order to perhaps underline the remarkableness of the fact that scarcely more than a decade later, the Soviet Union uh, has gone out of existence. Things were looking bright a decade earlier, as you just said, but things obviously deteriorated dramatically in the course of a decade. What happened? 
as I see it, contingency as so often plays a big role. And here, the major contingencies appear to me to be Gorbachev's reform program, which he started with the political sphere. And that meant uh, opening everything up for criticism. Uh, The criticism, uh, especially of the past, turned out to be very demoralizing for the society. You, You have a sort of to a degree, a crisis of faith, I think, uh, and, and legitimacy, uh, which ended with the very rapid and remarkable disintegration of the Soviet Union, which was actually only possible because of its union structure. That is the fact that it consisted of a number of union republics with strong leaders who, in the end, led by the Russian Republic and Yeltsin, decided to leave the union. You attach no significance to the role Ronald Reagan played in the collapse of Soviet communism, but many American conservatives would push back and say to you, Sheila, what about Reagan's increased defence budget in the 1980s? What about putting those Pershing missiles into Europe in the 1980s? SDI, derided as Star Wars at the time, his blunt condemnation of the evil empire, They'd say this all put economic and moral pressure on the Soviets. Sheila Fitzpatrick. Americans do always like to have themselves in the centre of the story and to feel that, uh, you know, whatever happens in the world happened because uh, because of their actions. I don't I don't say that these actions were uh, were irrelevant. They're part of the general picture and and uh, no doubt part of Gorbachev's feeling that reform was necessary. But basically, I would I, I would think that domestic factors are much more important. That was Sheila Fitzpatrick. And I spoke with Sheila last April about the shortest history of the Soviet Union, which is published by Black Ink Books. Up next on Between the Lines, the summer series, the geopolitics of the new space race. Well, in the last space race, there was really only two competitors, the United States and the Soviet Union. And even at the height of the Cold War, agreements and treaties about the rules in space, well, they were successfully negotiated. But the world, a half a century later, it's a very different place, isn't it? Space has become contested and crowded, and the goals for competitors, they've changed. Now, to discuss what the new space race looks like and what's at stake, I'm joined by Dr. Cassandra Steer. She's a Deputy Director and Mission Specialist with the ANU Institute of Space. Now, back in September, I asked Cassandra to tell us more about the Artemis program, the return to the moon and the new space race. Artemis is named after the goddess of the moon, um, and that's the twin sister of Apollo. And Apollo, obviously, was the name of the program that took uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon uh, in 1969. So Indeed. the US named that program after after the twin sister of Apollo. <laughs> right. um, it is it is indeed an international program. So they're partnering with um, countries through the European Space Agency. Australia is a partner in that program through our space agency, and we have Australian companies developing things like um, lunar um, robots to do some exploration of the lunar surface. 
And the whole point of returning to the moon, so the Artemis program is going to bring humans back to the moon for the first time since 1972. It's going to put the first woman on the moon, the first person of color on the moon. And these are all really great aspirations, but it's not really what's dri the driving force behind it. The driving force behind it is a new race for resources on the moon. Yes, and it's not just the US and Europeans. There's lots of other countries with ambitions to go to space. Tell us more. That's right. So China and Russia have a memorandum of understanding to work together on a joint program. Um, and they plan on landing um, ro robotics, so automated uh, lunar craft by 2025 or 2026, which is the same time period within which Artemis is going to land robotics and then humans on the moon. And then there are countries like India, which plans to go to the moon. The United Arab Emirates has a program. Um, Israel has tried a couple of times to at least land a, a lunar module on the moon. Um, so it's starting to become uh, very much an international competition. And that reflects, I mean, you said the space age of the 1960s was very much between the Soviets and the US. The fact that there are many more countries involved this time and that they are dependent on commercial actors for a lot of the technologies, that's a reflection of geopolitics today. Okay, many more countries are involved, but what about the Russians? Aren't they leaving the International Space Station program? They, they have said that they are going to leave after 2024. So at the moment, the, the, the International Space Station has a series of ongoing agreements every five to 10 years. The, the partner countries have to sign an agreement to continue to fund it. And every 10 years or so, um, or every five to 10 years, there have been indications both from the US side and the Russian side that they may want to cease funding it. And of course, the recent announcement by Roscosmos, the, the Russian space agency, was timed around these tensions of what's going on in, in Ukraine, of course, to say, look, we're going to pull out of this international cooperative agreement. But all they said was they would do it after 2024, which is the date at which the current funding agreement runs out anyway. And the US had indicated that it probably would wind up the funding a few years after that. So the, I think the statement and the, and the messaging around it was very political, but the likelihood of it winding up in the next decade or so was already on the cards. What does all this mean for space treaties? Because, I mean, with this clamour to venture into space, it obviously means some degree of cooperation and established protocols. And, you know, during the height of the Cold War, we had this, um, you know, these agreements between the United States and the Soviets. I think there's the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, the 1979 Moon Agreement. I mean, do those agreements stand up today? They absolutely do. So the, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty has well over 100 countries that have signed onto it. So wow. although the text of the treaty, yeah, it's got it's got really significant participation. And obviously not all of those countries or hardly any of them were active in space when the treaty was drafted. But a number of them, in particular, you know, the kind of traditional middle powers um, that in, in the Cold War period and, and also today. So European powers like France and Germany, um, some Asian powers like Japan, um, the UK and Australia and New Zealand, all of these countries and a lot of smaller nations too, um, particularly equatorial nations because of um, the, the importance of particular orbital slots that are above those countries. A lot of countries supported that treaty because it was the beginning of humans having entered space. It was very clear space was going to become a key strategic and military domain for intelligence gathering, for observation, for telecommunications and into the future. 
And so countries wanted to ensure that it didn't become the next battlefield, particularly a nuclear battlefield between the Soviets and the US. So the principles of that treaty are very, very strong and they absolutely hold up today. They say things like there's no uh, appropriation in space. No country can claim ownership uh, in space. Um, But at the same time, the nation state retains responsibility for all of its activities in space, whether those are governmental or commercial activities, the international responsibility rests with the nation state. What does all this mean for resource extraction? Because we talked about that um, that uh, Artemis Accord, that boldly asserts that resource extraction will be, that, that'll occur, it's lawful, and clearly being the first to be in a position to mine, that's an advantage. What minerals and resources are on the moon and how might they be used? Yeah, so this is one of the key tension points that, you know, although I said absolutely the Outer Space Treaty stands up today, it lacks some clarity about what it means, you know, so no country can claim ownership. The US having planted a flag on the moon is purely symbolic. But if there are countries and or companies that now want to extract resources, mine the moon or mine asteroids, it's unclear. There's an enormous debate as to whether or not that amounts to appropriation. So if you're a smaller nation where Western powers have come in and mined your resources, you're absolutely going to think that that's appropriation, right? Particularly if these other countries have benefited economically. And that's the concern of what's going to go on with with this um, lunar mining. So what they're looking for is ice and water in particular, and then some gases like helium-3 that might be able to be used for fuels. And this is all about supporting long-term human habitation. So coupled with the Artemis program is a program to build a a permanent space station, much like the International Space Station, but this one's gonna be orbiting the moon, human habitation on the moon. And so we need to have resources in particular water to support that. And eventually the plan is in many, many decades from now, what we learn from that is what will get humans to Mars. But, but I think what's going to happen in the next, even the next five to 10 years, when this mining starts to become a reality, that's really going to bring these geopolitical tensions to a head. Um, and there are efforts internationally to try and come up with some international regimes to govern it legally. But, but there are huge tension points and disagreements about what that should look like. Well, we're talking about nations and governments and geopolitical tensions there. But what about private enterprise and corporations? I mean, is there anything stopping, say, a big mining company like a BHP or Rio Tinto or an entrepreneur like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Could they run a mission to the moon, say, set up a base and start extracting minerals and resources? Cassandra? I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, and in wow. fact, SpaceX, <laughs> SpaceX is involved in the Artemis program. Um, they will be providing some of the, the te- not the launch technologies to get there, but some of the landing technologies. And they, SpaceX has made very explicit that its plan is to get humans to, to Mars. So it is going to need to learn how to um, extract and use those kinds of resources. It's worrying, right? But at the same time, as I mentioned, international space law says that the nation state is responsible. So no company, no commercial entity can do anything in space without getting licenses and authorization from the country in which they are registered as a company. And sometimes from multiple countries, depending on how they're operating and where they're launching from. So no company can do anything in space without falling under the laws and jurisdiction of of their country. Um, so it's up to the nation states to be putting in place laws, which which many countries have, which really do um, regulate these companies, regulate the sustainability of their activities. 
But the tension really is that there are lots of smaller nations who are supposed to have equal access to space and to its benefits who are being locked out because it's a race between the most powerful and most economic. Not everyone signed on to this Artemis. I mean, what are their concerns? Yeah, that's right. So, so the Artemis Accords were originally billed as an agreement to sign on to if, you, if a country wanted to become part of the Artemis program. It's since kind of expanded its intentions and now the US says, no, this is just a document to agree on certain principles where we don't have clarity around, uh, around the law, in particular around resource extraction, um, some things around safety zones. Um, some of the principles are great. We need technological interoperability. We need data sharing. We need communications. We need to protect astronauts. Um, but, but the tension points around these particular principles around resource extraction are, are what is challenging. So there are 21 countries that have signed on to those um, agreements uh, as of today. And some of those are smallish nations who may or may not actually have the ability to, you know, to have a lunar program, but they want to see clarity around the principles. And that will actually help to reduce those tensions, I think, in the end. And what does that mean for Australia's space program, Cassandra? And what are we working towards? We're in a tricky position. So we we very much partner with NASA on a, on a lot of work. Um, you know, the first uh, commercial launch outside of the US took place um, through NASA as a client in the north of Australia just a, a couple of months ago up in East Arnhem Land. And our Australian Space Agency has a program called Moon to Mars where it's helping Australian researchers and Australian companies to get that access to the NASA program, which gives them funding and gives them the ability to, to be really part of the, the biggest space program. But we're in a tricky position because we've signed the Artemis Accords, but we're also one of only 18 countries that have signed the Moon Agreement, that other treaty you mentioned from 1979. That, uh -huh. that doesn't have hundreds of countries. It only has 18, wow. most of which are very small nations and not big space powers. And that, that treaty was an attempt, in fact, to protect lunar resources against commercial exploitation, uh, which is why the bigger powers did not sign on to it. And that treaty obliges Australia to come up with some kind of international legal regime at such a time as mining on the moon is about to become feasible. That's the language of the treaty. So it looks oh like it's about to become feasible. And on the one hand, we've signed the Artemis Accords, which say resource extraction is lawful under the Outer Space Treaty and will take place. And on the other hand, we've got the Moon Agreement obligation, which says actually nothing on the moon can belong to any entity and we need to come up with an international legal regime. So. Australia actually has a huge opportunity to demonstrate some international leadership here. We can, we can come up with a regime and we can be leaders in coming up with the regime to help govern these new activities in space. Well, it's difficult right now just enforcing and preserving what's called a, a rules-based liberal international order here on Earth. So it's uh, presumably more difficult when it comes to the geopolitics of space governments. Look, I was just going to say space has, has so far been characterised by strategic restraint. That's changing, though. It is. Strategic restraint is what kept... The, there was a shared... Um, agreement of values actually between the Soviets and the Americans, despite it being a very tense period in history, that they both very quickly realised because of testing weapons in space and seeing that you can't contain the impacts of weapons in space because of its physics. So very quickly they realised that they needed to, if they wanted to both continue to have access to space and all of the benefits it gave them for intelligence and communications and so on, that they needed to have they needed to restrain themselves. Strategic restraint said keep space stable and peaceful in order to keep it useful. And 
We saw a move away from that, I think in the early 2000s in particular, when the US started to talk about dominance and predominance in space when China tested an anti-satellite weapon uh, in 2007 by destroying one of its own satellites and creating an enormous amount of debris, much of which is still in orbit today. Uh, the US, India and Russia have all tested similar destructive uh, anti-satellite weapons, which is exactly what's being discussed here in Geneva this week and how we can prevent that happening in the future. Because the debris it creates is an enormous threat to all of the satellites that you and I depend on on a daily basis for navigation, for Uber Eats, for telecommunications, for finance, for weather, for tracking bushfires, for search and rescue. You know, we use space hundreds of times a day. And so there was a move away from that strategic restraint and to a greater sense of competition in space um, with weapons testing, with, you know, the US creating space force, a lot of countries, including Australia, creating space commands within our armed forces. But what we're seeing in particular with these discussions here in Geneva and in, in the UN is that countries are starting to realise the urgency of protecting space from becoming a battle space because of how thoroughly dependent all of us are on, on space technologies. And so there's a move away, there's actually a move back towards strategic restraint, although now it's being given another name. Now we're talking about responsible behaviours. And some of that links back into sustainability of future activities on the moon. So we're starting to see, I think, a greater awareness globally about how important space is and a shift back towards, you know, we need to have shared norms and indeed some kind of international rules-based order to govern the complexity of these activities. That's Cassandra Steer. Deputy Director and Mission Specialist with the ANU Institute of Space and co-editor of War and Peace in Outer Space, Law, Policy and Ethics. That's published by Oxford University Press. Well, that's it for this edition of Between the Lines, the summer series. In our next episode, more highlights from 2022, including a lengthy conversation with former Prime Minister John Howard and a startling new perspective on the world's most notorious terrorist, Nelly Lahoud. She reveals what she learned about Osama bin Laden after reading thousands of pages of his personal papers. This treasure trove of documents that were seized by US Special Forces during the 2011 lethal raid on his secret compound in Pakistan. Hope you can join me then. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.